Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Kave. I'm Lizzie. Lizzie, uh, I was thinking, yes. I was thinking about what I really miss from the pandemic. What the pandemic has taken from me. It's not restaurants because I eat at restaurants now, not inside but outside, and that's fine. I always enjoyed that more, anyways. Um, movies. I do miss going to the movie theater, but I didn't do it that much anyways. And these days you have home theater. That's all great. But this, I realized, is the longest I've gone without playing music live, performing music live in some dive bar since college. So I am really missing that i'm missing the dive bar it's like my favorite kind of bar i don't like fancy bars i don't like shishi bars they're fine i got nothing against them but there's some comfort in a dark dive bar maybe it has a pool table maybe it has a dartboard maybe it doesn't but those are the things i miss i miss playing music at those places you came you watched this play a number of times you know how much fun i had doing that that this is the longest i've gone without that and I, I, I'm, I am a little worried, like about that. I mean, when is that going to come back? So I have a question for you. When do you think you'll be comfortable going back into a bar? Two. What do you miss the most? I'm comfortable going into bars now, that are not too crowded. In, into a bar. If into a bar, crowded. yeah, and into a restaurant that are not super crowded. I'm vaccinated. Um, San Francisco is over 75% vaccinated, much better than the country as a whole. Um, and I do have a lot of faith in the neighborhood. I do. I mean, it's um, a bubble, you know, and, and the bubble that I've surrounded myself in when I'm in New York and in San Francisco are the people who get vaccinated. Um, you know, everyone here composts. There's just a different level of civic duty. There is um, when you are required to do certain things. So the stats in San Francisco have always been good. We were the first to lock down. People are very respectful with masks. I've seen people wearing masks when they're jogging and biking since day one. If it's not a crowded bar or restaurant, I have 
gone inside. I have to say, I think the rules now don't let us go into bars just to drink. So I have not done that. You have to actually eat. That's like a weird loophole. Well, so, okay. A couple of things. Um, I hear what you're saying. A lot of it depends. The comfort level depends on where you are and what the rates of not just vaccine, but of COVID infections are in that area. Yeah. That's, a, that's a huge factor, I think. Yeah. Um, I would say this though, rural areas, they do have a different sense of civic duty. I wouldn't say it's less. Yeah. Because San Francisco has always had a very low rate. It is really just the stats. So I do feel confident in going to not crowded restaurants, not crowded bars and I think you should try to find a place you can play music outdoors. You know, if you go to like Golden Gate Park, bring an amp, like you can do stuff like that. You know, maybe not in your backyard because your neighbors will get pissed, but like you can maybe try to figure something like that out. Is that That's an option? True. You know, it, it will be, and I'm sure at some point it'll happen, but there's something really magical about being in a small bar. It's the darkness of it, the enclosed yeah vibe of it like drinking pbrs in the small little green room in the back there's something about that whole experience that i i love and and i'm sure it'll be great it'll change and it will be different for a while and they'll find ways to make it good just like we've done with everything else but there is something about that very distinct almost claustrophobic yeah. feeling that's really that I actually love. You miss like, the stench because there's a stench and a must. There is a, it's like disgusting. I love that you miss that. <laughs> the thing I do miss yeah. is like sort of randomly happening upon a place, you know, and, and I have done that since COVID. I've eaten outside. Oh, look, we can eat here. But like, I feel like I need to like prepare more now. Do they have outdoor seating? Because <laughs> I prefer mm -hmm. to do outdoor seating, but I would go indoors if I needed to. Do they have burnt, you know, heat lamps? do I need to make a reservation? Like the stress right. of that, it's always present in a, a packed city, but the level of that now is, I think of it heightened, that sense of sort of, can I get a seat? I'm always like walking right. to a place thinking, what's the plan B? Because I don't know if there's going to be seats. So that's, I yeah. do miss that kind of the random wandering the and carefree. happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. All right. Okay. Well, let's get to our guest. She is amazing. Her name is Dr. Megan Rainey. She's an ER doctor. She's been really involved in studying firearm injury, as well as getting doctors and frontline workers here in this country, the personal protective equipment or PPE that they need. So stay tuned to hear her and what she has to say. I want to thank Nadim for help with production. If you haven't already, please follow us at Twitter at the house of pod. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, you oughta. And if you would be so kind as to leave a review for us on iTunes, that would be spectacular as well. And we will make sure to read it on the show. Anyone you want to thank, Lizzie? Never. Then people stay tuned. And in the meantime, you can hear some music from my crappy band playing live at some dive bar a couple years ago. I don't know what song we will pick for this edit, but it is starting now. Today, we have Dr. Megan Rainey. She is an ER physician. You know, you probably heard about her through multiple different sources. During the COVID pandemic, 
she really brought it to the public attention that there was this tremendous lack of protective equipment for frontline workers here in the United States. She launched this grassroots organization, hashtag get us PPE, to collect, create, and distribute PPE around the United States. She's also well known for her work with the American Foundation for Firearm Injury, um, for firearm injury reduction in medicine, I'm sorry. Uh, She is currently working at the Brown University Emergency Department, which makes her not only our first guest from Rhode Island, but possibly the first person I've ever met from Rhode Island. So this is very exciting for me. I didn't believe it existed. If we're being totally honest, I just thought it was a made up place. So I am very happy to meet someone from Rhode Island. Dr. Randy, thank you so much for joining us. It is totally my pleasure. You know, there are only about a million of us here, so your your statistical <laughs> likelihood of meeting one of us is a little bit smaller. Wait, were you actually born there? No, I'm oh. actually, so I should say, I'm born, in, born and raised in Western New York, born in Syracuse, raised in Buffalo, diehard Buffalo Bills fan. Yeah, okay. I don't, okay. yeah. We yeah, don't, woo! If it's, not, if it's not Warriors basketball, we don't discuss it. So um, you got your master's in public health after medical school, I believe, right? Yeah, so I I finished, I did med school. I came here to Brown for internship, did my internship and residency in emergency medicine, and then decided to stay on for a fellowship in injury prevention. And as part of that, got my MPH. Got it. Um, And what, what made you get your MPH? Was it something about injury prevention or is that related to your advocacy and desire to address gun violence in America? So I actually, before coming to med school, toyed with whether I wanted to get a master's in public health or go to med school. Um, I spent uh, two and a half years in West Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer uh, in between college and med school. And that was kind of my decision time. And I decided there that I really wanted to be a practicing physician. Uh, that I wanted to come back and go to med school, um, partly because of, you know, the stuff that my villagers went through, uh, and I I wanted to have been able to treat them. When I came back to med school, I had hoped to get an MPH during med school, but honestly, like most of us, the debt of med school was too big, and I just couldn't afford to pay for a fifth year. So it had always been on my long-term plan, and one of the nice things about fellowship was that you got the MPH for free. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, will you tell us more then about um, how you came about applying your MPH and that knowledge to gun violence like where, and your passion for doctors' role in gun violence in America and how we can impact that? So, you know, part of my motivation for going to med school um, was looking at the intersection between violence and all the other health problems that were out there. You know, I'd spent time in Peace Corps Um, in Cote d'Ivoire at the time when HIV AIDS was at its height. And I watched the intersection between gender-based violence, sexual assault and domestic violence, and the AIDS epidemic. When I came back to the States, I thought that that was going to be what I spent time with. And then as I went through med school and then residency in emergency medicine, I saw all the ways that sexual assault and partner violence intersected with all the other kinds of violence that were out there. And of course, as an ER doc, took care of gunshot wound after gunshot wound. That was why I went and did my fellowship in injury prevention research was to try to get more skills to prevent violence and then treat its aftermath, including infectious diseases and other behavioral health problems. At that point, I actually wasn't talking a lot about gun violence because nobody was. This was the mid 2000s. 
we'd basically been told uh, by the federal government, as well as by many of our own luminaries within medicine, to not talk about firearm injury as a health or public health problem. But it was in my first year of fellowship um, that I took care of a couple of cases that really changed my trajectory. One was a young man uh, who came into the ED and barely hanging on for life uh, after shooting himself in the head with his father's gun. And that case changed me in a lot of ways. Um, I talk about it in my TED Talk, which folks can go listen to, so I don't want to repeat the whole story. But the kind of short version is that I started to wonder why he had chosen to do that, what we could have done to prevent it. And if we could have prevented that gunshot wound, why we weren't trying to prevent all the others. I also had a couple of really bad domestic violence gunshot wounds that year. And then of course the usual drumbeat of community violence cases. And I started to talk about why couldn't we prevent gun violence the same way that we were trying to prevent other forms of violence, right? It was acceptable to talk about domestic violence. It was acceptable to talk about sexual assault. Why couldn't we talk about firearms? And that's what then led me on the path to where I am today. It was partly what I was seeing, but it was also partly a frustration that there really was virtually no one in the country um, who was calling attention to it or trying to do something about it. You know, it's really interesting because you talk about how when you first showed some interest in this, you first were drawn to this, there were people in medicine, not talking about like politicians, but people in medicine just saying, forget it leave it alone. It's going nowhere. You're not going to get anything done with this. And there's certainly, I feel this feeling of hopelessness amongst doctors when it comes to gun violence. There's just this like, you know, what's the point? We're not going to do anything. Americans love their guns. They're not going to change any gun laws. No one's going to ever do anything. A couple of questions here. One, do you still feel hopeful? Two, how? And, and three, you know, what makes you feel hopeful? Do I feel hopeful? Yes. I am not like a rainbows and unicorns hopeful. This is not Pollyanna, um, but I do have hope. What makes me feel hopeful? I mean, gosh, I was talking to someone today who I've known for almost 15 years in the firearm injury prevention world. And we were saying, you know, when we first met, talking about firearm injury prevention or talking about firearm injury as a public health problem was something that no one did. And now it's something that is on CNN and that our president talks about at the Rose Garden. That gives me hope. We have transformed the conversation so tremendously, partly through tragedy, right? It's not happenstance that we've made progress, but those tragedies didn't necessarily have to lead to good. The way that we started to transform the conversation is through taking those tragedies and working both with the survivors and with the larger community to create a movement towards a different view of firearm injury where it's not seen as inevitable, but rather it's seen as preventable. Yeah. And then to the last part of your question, I mean, where do I, what else gives me hope? It's that, I mean, we have federal funding for firearm injury prevention for the first time in 25 years. I have junior investigators who are working with me to try to figure out the root causes, the epidemiology, the prevention, the treatment of firearm injury in a way that wasn't possible even five years ago. We have 
200 healthcare systems across the country who've signed up to be part of Northwell's collaborative on gun violence prevention. Those are all things that would have been a figment of my imagination even five years ago. And each of those to me is a small step towards change. No one of them is sufficient, but I see the momentum building. And sure, we don't have policy change, but any of us who practice in medicine know that policy is often necessary, but it is never sufficient for creating health. And I actually think that some of the biggest things that we can do to change the patterns of firearm injury and death in our country are policy independent. And so seeing these collaboratives of people, seeing the ways in which physicians and nurses and physician assistants and social workers are changing the ways that they talk about firearm injury, the way that they talk about prevention and treatment, and the way that they're active within their communities, that's honestly what gives me hope. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think doctors often feel, and medical community, we feel outside of policy a lot, you know, um, and it's very interesting how state-by-state state rules and laws can change so much. And one thing you mentioned that I didn't know about you is that the, your experience in West Africa and like the gender biases led you to kind of develop this interest in gun violence and how domestic abuse and these relationships are often part of where this terrible violence occurs. Can you tell us a little bit more about those stats and maybe some misconceptions that people have about stats? And because in the media, all we see are mass shootings and, and that's not actually what the majority of gun violence should reflect. Now, Lizzie, thank you. That is a really important point. So, you know, I'm a parent. And so like anyone else, I see the stories about these mass shootings and they just strike fear into my heart. I think about going to the movie theaters differently. I go think about sending my kids to school differently. The one small blessing of COVID is that there were no mass school shootings last year, right? But the reality is, is that those represent less than well under 1% um, of firearm deaths in a country, even in the worst years, you know, even in the year of the Las Vegas shooting, those mass shootings are just a drop in the bucket. Um, of the number of gun deaths in our country. Two thirds of firearm deaths in our country in any given year are suicides. And that's something that's rarely talked about. The homicides are uh, predominantly experienced by young minority men. Um, suicides are largely white rural men, um, but women are not immune. And the most common reason for a woman to die from a firearm injury is domestic violence. More than 75 women die every month because they're shot by a partner. And actually one of the biggest predictors of a woman's risk of death from domestic violence is whether her partner owns or has access to a firearm. Yeah. One of the saddest parts of my work, but also one of the things that gives me the most pride um, was the loss of one of our own, one of many women who've been killed, shot and killed by a partner, but um, a fellow emergency physician, Dr. Tamara O'Neill, uh, who was shot by her ex-fiance as she was walking out of a shift at Mercy Hospital in November of 2018. He killed her and he killed a police officer and a pharmacist. And she um, was an unbelievably bright light, not just for her community and for her family, um, but also for the larger community of emergency medicine. And um, out of her death, I've developed a friendship with two of her closest friends, um, Amira Hamid and Garth Walker, um, who both practice in Chicago still. 
and we've created a memorial fund in her honor um, to help motivate other young uh, women emergency physicians of color to try to take on this issue to address um, both the stigma around domestic violence and to address what Tamara really cared about, which was empowering communities um, to live their best lives and to uh, sidestep that risk of violence um, to create a better future um, for the folks that she worked with and cared about. That's a story that I share not just because it's tragic, but also because it's one of the many stories that motivates me in this work. I think there's this sense in firearm injury that outside of mass shootings, it's not something that touches us. And it's just not true. Mm -hmm. When I do this work and when I give talks about gun violence, I inevitably, um, in, in before times when it was non-COVID and I actually could talk to people after my lectures, but uh, I inevitably get approached by folks afterwards who want to share their own personal stories with me. And I will tell you that almost all of us have a personal story of how we've been touched by gun violence, even outside of the clinical sphere. And I think that that is a really important thing to remember, to take it out of those stats and to bring it back to the human stories and the ways in which each of us is touched by this epidemic, because that then centers us in the real reasons to fight it. We're not fighting it because of politics. We're not fighting it because of some lofty ideal. We're fighting it because of our friends and our community and those human stories that matter, including Dr. O'Neill's. You mentioned that there was a, a fund you had created in her honor. Could you share that with us at this point? I mean, do you, we'll obviously put a link to it, but could you also just tell listeners where they could go if they wanted to uh, donate or contribute? Yeah, absolutely. So it's on the Affirm Research website. So it's A-F-F-I-R-M research.org. And there's a link to donate and there's a little drop down menu to donate in her honor. You know, along along the lines of that colleague you lost, this has been a bad year, obviously, for emergency room doctors from suicide because of the stresses of the job and mental health issues that you know doctors are not getting addressed to COVID. You're seeing all of that. I'm sure you, your colleagues and people you know, it's touched them directly and you probably lost people you know directly from it. This doesn't have to be about you 100% per se, but how, how should we deal with this? How should our doctors deal with this? How we talked about moral injury, we talked about burnout, we talked about it before COVID, and now it's, it's only worse, obviously. It's only gotten worse. What are we going to do to prevent a generation of burned out, broken physicians? So I think there's two things. So first is what do we do in the short term, and that is to support each other. I think that community and the social support that we provide each other is huge in the moment. Um, when I, you know, my, my research is around kind of violence and the related mental health problems. And one of the biggest predictors of resilience after trauma is having social support around you. And so we as healthcare providers can provide that for each other. Our larger communities can provide that for us. But that's a short-term fix to protect each other and to protect our professions and our specialties and the practice of healthcare that requires systems change. And so I'll be honest, the thing that has gotten me through the past year 
but also the thing that motivates me around firearm injury and part of the reason I co-founded Affirm is that action gives me hope. And knowing that I go to my shift, I deal with whatever annoying systems issues are there, but then that I'm doing something outside of it to help change things. And that I'm working with other like-minded people to help change things. Yeah, That's the thing that gets me through. And that's right. also the thing that's going to get my junior colleagues through. I'll bet right. it's part of the reason that you guys do this podcast, right? Oh, it's, it's, like, a, it's a huge part of it. It's a, yeah. it's, the community, like you said, it's really great to meet other doctors who are passionate about things. But and we make a lot of jokes about doctors. We make fun of doctors all the time here. We talk about well how deserved. weird doctors are. Yeah, and it's largely well-deserved. But at the same time, if we didn't really love the people that we know, our colleagues, we wouldn't want to do this. I mean, a big part of us doing this is to give people a voice and have them talk. And um, it's, I think it's, it, it's been more important than ever. It's why since COVID, we've actually stepped it up. We used to do like one episode a month. <laughs> and now since COVID, we do it like one or two times a week sometimes. Even. So we, we really, for us, it's, it's good for us. It gives us a sense of community and we hope it's giving other people a sense of community too. I mean, it's, a, it's the, we don't have a lot of power. Um, it's the one thing we feel like we can do to sort of contribute to it. And, and I think just to go off of that, I think that's really important. So I think that for each of us, we all have something that we can contribute. You know, and some folks it might be doing stats or it might be doing a simulation case for your residents or it might be, you know, working to do a vaccine clinic for your housekeeping staff, right? Or it might be doing a podcast or, you know, whatever. We all have something to contribute. We don't all have to do all of it, but each of us have to find that thing that both feeds us and makes the world a better place. Yeah. Yeah, but I, no more podcasters, please. We got to cover. <laughs> There's a lot of podcasters. Everyone, There's a everyone lot has a of podcast podcasters here. now. Well, Holy one hell. thing. You guys are the best. We, first correct. of all. First of all, true. Second of all, um, <laughs> You know, one thing at the beginning of COVID I thought about a lot is um, how do doctors feel supported? Because people kept asking. And in San Francisco, we didn't see a huge surge. You know, it wasn't crazy. Um, I don't know if at Brown, you guys saw, you did. You saw crazy numbers. Audience, she's nodding. Um, and uh, one thing I was thinking early on when people were asking me, how can I support you? You know, friends who are outside of the medical community and family, how can I support you? Again, as a GI doctor, not super busy at the beginning of the pandemic. I was thinking that doctors, what they needed support um, or how they needed support was, was feeling like they had institutional and systemic support, which is what you just mentioned, like the system needs to change. And the one way that I think most doctors would agree at the very beginning of the pandemic is that we felt like we needed PPE. We needed to feel physical protection. We, I didn't need a hug. I needed to have a barrier. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and that was something that I wanted to ask you about is you wrote this article in the New England Journal of Medicine and you became a voice for advocating for doctors and, and nurses and, and medical staff in general to fight for PPE. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is that where you came from? Is that feeling support? And, you know, if you're not going to get weeks and months of vacation and billions of dollars, just give us PPE, right? I mean. <laughs> it, was, it was just this total frustration that no one else was standing up for us. You know, as you said, the system didn't become broken overnight. The system has been broken for a long time. 
but COVID just ripped all the band-aids off. And to see myself, my colleagues, not just here in Rhode Island, but across the country being forced to practice without PPE was just infuriating and terrifying. And I think I and many others got to the point of saying enough. If no one else will provide us with PPE, we'll do it ourselves. So, you know, it wasn't just me, it was a group of us. Um, a friend, Esther Chu, created the hashtag Get Me PPE. Uh, we then created an online petition with Dr. Valerie Griffith, um, who's now in Chicago. She was at Oregon at the time. And then the next day, Ali Raja and Shuhan Hay from MGH approached me and said, let's create a website. Um, I had just had my first CNN appearance at that point and was being deluged with amazing offers for donations of PPE to my hospital, mm. which were so appreciated, but also felt so unfair because this was not just about me, right? This was about our entire country and about all of us um, having to practice without adequate protection. And so that was the genesis of Get Us PPE. And then from there, it just took off. Um, we had an unbelievable group of volunteers who stepped up over literally days to create this organization. Um, and it's been, you know, almost a year and a half now. Um, we're going to be winding down in the next month because we're not needed anymore. And we're not here to exist for the sake of existing. We were here to meet a need. Yeah. But there was really no question in my mind, um, in some ways similar to firearm injury, that there was a problem. No one else was fixing it. And I wasn't going to sit by and see a possible solution exist and not step up and try to bring other people along. So I feel lucky to have connected with the folks I did. Yeah, that's great. That I actually, it's really, it's really commendable that you're just like, okay, we did our thing. Now we're done. As opposed to like turning this into a super pack or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so we, have some listener questions we like to ask you i wanted to ask you i had some mask questions but i think they're going to come up in these listener questions so most of these listener questions are like tell her how great she is she's the best it's not a question people i need a question here's a couple um this one is from brooke streeshock at b streeshock on twitter one how does she feel about unvaccinated kids indoors when mask mandates are removed and two flying with unvaccinated kids as more people begin to travel. I think she means, how do you feel about that? So yeah, first one, how do you feel about unvac unvaccinated kids indoors when mask mandates are removed? So for right now, anyone who is unvaccinated clearly needs to keep a mask on indoors. And I feel like as a parent, I'm going to keep my mask on indoors, even though I'm fully vaccinated, because I need to be a good role model for my kids. I'm not going to make them keep their masks on when I don't have to. I, it's not how parenting works, right? right. Um, I think that as COVID cases continue to drop and vaccination rates increase, we'll be able to change that. And at some point, our unvaccinated kids may be able to be indoors without masks on. But that's not today, and certainly not in schools. Regarding flying, right now, the CDC guidelines, thank goodness, still specify that on public transport, you have to wear a mask. So whether you're vaccinated or not, keep that mask on on your plane. Um, I have not yet taken my kids on a plane since the pandemic, but we are looking forward to traveling, um, hopefully over Christmas break. Um, and, you know, my little guy may or may not be vaccinated by then, um, but we'll still keep a mask on him, assuming COVID cases are similar to where they are now. One, you should visit San Francisco. 
Two, I know the answer to this, but I think I know the answer to this, but are you going to still be wearing your mask indoors? So for the time being, I am. And I'm going to keep wearing it indoors for a couple of reasons. The first is, is that the majority of Americans are not yet vaccinated. Now, we're never going to get to everybody, but there are a lot of folks who still want to be vaccinated who haven't had the chance yet. And I just don't feel it's fair to them for me to take a mask off Mm -hmm. from like that cultural community standpoint. Solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other part is, is that COVID cases are not zero, right? Mm -hmm. And although these vaccines are absolutely amazing, they're not 100%. And I'm sure that you guys, like I, have seen a couple of cases here and there of breakthrough infections. They're not horrible. They're not landing people in the hospital. But you know what? I've come this far. It doesn't hurt me to wear a mask a little bit longer. I have no desire to catch COVID, not even a mild case. Yeah. I have a lot of affection and attachment to my masks at this point. Um, okay, here's a question from Dr. Neuro Fourier, Fourier, I believe I'm saying that right, at Neuro Fourier. <laughs> Um, with COVID being the forefront of every public health discussion, sometimes the only, what are some of the other pressing public health challenges we need to remain vigilant on? I love that question. I have been trying to get that message into my media appearances and like, it's a battle, (laughs) but I feel like we have been all COVID all the time, very appropriately for the last, you know, 16, 17 months, but there are all these other health problems which existed before COVID and have just worsened over the last year and a half. Opioid overdoses, mental health problems, violence, certainly, you know, we know that gun violence rates have gone up in the last year. Um, Preventive care has gone by the wayside. You know, it's a GI doc, right? Our colonoscopy rates have dropped. Mammography rates have dropped. Kids' dental appointments have dropped. I'm worried about all of those. Um, And I think it's essential for us to keep talking about them. I think there's a lot of neat innovation that has happened as a result of COVID, right? The fact that we had no choice forced us to try new things. Um, A lot of my work is around how we can use technology to improve the availability of preventive services and treatment to folks with those behavioral health problems, addiction, mental health violence. And I think there's a new opportunity for us to address those. Um, But we can't forget that those were not created by the pandemic. They pre-existed it mm-hmm. and they've gotten worse, maybe partly because of it, but partly also because we've not been paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is one good thing about the pandemic. I think that technology, I hope, will um, take a little bit more of a steering wheel kind of aspect to uh, medicine. It just seems so archaic, some of the things that we do and some of the interfaces of patients online are still really um, basic. Uh, you know, and you, if you just try to communicate with your doctor, it just seems not as easy um, as it could be or should be. And I'd like to think that the COVID pandemic will push technology a little bit more forward. And you're right. You know, everyone was talking about opioids. Everyone was talking about vaping. You know, I, I think we didn't, we did an episode with my dad on vaping like Aww. a year and a half ago. And, and no one's talking about any of these things. And I think I read a stat today that the COVID pandemic has put us maybe 10 years in the hole with respect to preventative healthcare, doing outreach for people's diabetes and blood pressure and, you know, just general healthcare maintenance, colonoscopies, pap smears. As a medical institution, I think we're over 10 years in the hole right now. We can, we can mark our way out, but it's going to be hard, you know, and we're talking about the moral distress and burnout. Things aren't going to get easier. 
Yeah. No. And in fact, yeah. I think stuff is going to get a little worse before it gets better because so many of us, and certainly those of us in medicine are really good at suppressing our emotions. We learn right. how to do it really well during our right. training, but I think the rest of the world has done it too. And you know, I'm already seeing in my ER as stuff starts to open up, everybody's out and like going crazy, drinking too much on their mm -hmm. motorcycles, on their boats, mm -hmm. um, getting in fights. Uh, and and I, I think that we're going to see a lot more distress before it gets better. I, I will put in a plug here for those that are interested in this issue. My Center for Digital Health is actually going to be doing a virtual conference on June 22nd related to digital health in the post-pandemic world um, and would love to have folks join. Uh, I'll, I'll send you guys a link. Yeah, we'll definitely Great. promote that. Um, okay, the, most of these other comments left on Twitter are just things like, tell her I'm a fan. She's amazing. Stephanie McGann Jansen, she's a friend of ours. Uh, Sarah Diekman wants an autograph. Uh, Justin Waltress wants to thank you for being awesome. And uh, let's see, one more. Chase Anderson wants to know how you became so phenomenal. Um, so you got a lot of fans, a lot of people who just love what you've been doing. And, and we certainly appreciate it as well. Um, give us, please, some plugs where we can send people. We talked about a firm. We talked about the Center for Digital Health. Where can people find this stuff? Where can they find you? So they can find me on Twitter. I've got like a mini Instagram account, but Twitter is the best place at Megan Ranny. Um, do come check out our Center for Digital Health. Um, we're all about developing digital health tools that bring both evidence and equity into play. Um, it's digitalhealth.med.brown.edu. And then of course, Affirm Research, um, which is my first baby. Um, not really, my kids are a little older than Affirm, but, <laughs> um, but, but Chris Barsati, who's a fellow emergency physician from Vermont, and I co-founded it to try to reframe the conversation around firearm injury in this country. So check us out at affirmresearch.org. And uh, come visit us in Rhode Island. It's a really mm -hmm. great place, especially in the summer. I believe it, I've seen Family Guy. And it looks awesome. You um, too can go co-hogging. Yeah. Yes. Um, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. Vice versa. Thank you to both of you for doing this and for inviting me on. It's truly an honor and a joy to join you both. Thank you. Was that was that before or after he blocked us? That was before he blocked us. Can I tell the two of you, my dad, who is a retired orthopedic surgeon, sent me this link the other day being like, Megan, have you heard of this podcast? You totally have to listen to them. And it was you guys. That oh, is like good. So cute. We like, it, we like your dad. He's a good fellow. so adorable. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.